Today's scripture comes from Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your gospel of grace is strange to us. We don't often hear it. And if we do hear it, it's some cheap knockoff version of it. So we want to hear it, the, the, the real deal afresh this morning. Come by your spirit, open our ears, open our eyes to see the glory of your gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team. Good to be with you. If you're confused as to why we're reading Titus 2, 11 to 14 again, well, we're going to read it again in, in two weeks' time. We're just unpacking these, these four verses over the course of three weeks uh, in Advent. Next week, Brett Landry will be here to talk about the vision of Christ City Church. And so we're just excited about what this text has for us. Excited about Christ's appearing. Excited about this gospel of grace. Because this morning is all about grace. Grace is a word that we're pretty familiar with, isn't it? We're familiar with grace. Grace has become part of our common language. And so maybe you grew up in a home where before the meal, someone said grace. Which means not they just said the word grace, but they, but they prayed before the meal. Or maybe if somebody is particularly confident, uh, they'll say something like, I'm going to grace that party with my presence. Right? I've never said that before. Uh, I don't think that would be, in fact, grace to the party, me appearing. All these common uses of grace have a connection, even if only loosely, to its original meaning. See, when the Bible talks about grace, it's not referring to a general idea or to some sort of vague notion. It has a very specific meaning. And here's what it means. Tim Keller says this, Grace is the free unmerited favor of God working powerfully on the mind and heart to change lives. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God working powerfully on the mind and the heart to change lives. That's grace. In fact, you can trace the whole story of the Bible as one story of grace. From Abraham, right? To, to, to his descendants, to, to Jacob who became Israel. As God's people walk through the desert, to the New Testament itself is one big story of grace. And while that's true, while grace begins in Genesis 1 and grace will continue past Revelation 21, grace comes to us in a beautiful, unique way in the appearing of Jesus Christ. In a world-altering way. See, Advent, this time, right now, while there are candles being lit at the front, Advent, this season for the church, is a season of grace. Of grace. Again, grace is a nice word, isn't it? At some point, if you haven't already, in this season, you'll see grace alongside words like joy and hope, right? And, and peace. 
maybe illuminated in some Christmas display by, by beautiful lights, or perhaps, and this is not picking on you if you have this, maybe grace is like on calligraphy in like on a shelf in your house, right? It's, it looks beautiful, doesn't it? Doesn't grace look nice? But is that what grace is? Something said before meals, an adjective to describe a nice person, a pleasant word appropriate for Christmas calligraphy or illumination. Is that what grace is? We owe it to ourselves in this season of grace to investigate further. This morning we're going to see three things really simply. The grace we receive, the grace to repent, and the grace we rehearse. The grace we receive, the grace to repent, and the grace we rehearse. So first, the grace to receive. The Apostle Paul writes this in Titus 2, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, and you want one, throw your hand in the air, and on, who's back there right now, will bring a Bible to you. If you need a Bible, throw your hand in the air, he'll give you a Bible. But Paul says this, Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. In our investigation of grace, I think it makes sense to begin by asking, why do we need grace? Why do we need grace? If we go a bit further in Paul's letter to Titus and this church in Crete, he writes about the condition that grace comes to us in. He says this in Titus 3, verse 3. He says, for we ourselves, including himself, Paul says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. See, sin, in all its multifaceted manifestations, is why Paul, the church in Crete, you and I need grace. And I realize I just lost some of you, but, but stay with me. See, we often think of sin as just the bad things we do, right? I lie, I cheat, I steal, I do whatever, slander my colleagues, and that is sin. And in a way, that's true. That, that, that is sin. But if I can say it like this, the Bible paints a, a much more frightening picture of sin. I know it's not Halloween, but, but the Bible paints a much scarier picture of what sin is. See, notice in our passage in Titus 3, Paul describes sin using the language of slavery. He said what? He says sin leads us astray, like grabs us by the hand and leads us the wrong way. He says in sin we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. See, sin is not just the bad things we do, it's the oppressive regime we live under. Have you ever felt that way about your sin? Like it's an escapable, an unescapable force? Like, like there are unseen chains that keep you tethered to it no matter how hard you fight? Like, like sin is a lion crouching around the corner to devour your latest good deed or, or progress? I have. And if you, like me, have felt this before, you're in good company because the Apostle Paul felt like this all the time. In a famous chapter, in a famous letter, in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul describes his wrestle with covetousness, with longing for that which is not his. 
He wrestles with this. And and far from being content to describe coveting as this ill-advised action that he ought to just simply stop, right? Just stop it, Paul. He speaks, rather, of his sin coming up from a deep-seated force or power dwelling within him, enslaving him. He says, seizing opportunities to drag him down. And so much so, Paul concludes by saying this about his sin of covetousness. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but what? Sin that dwells in me. You you may have a few unwanted house guests this Christmas, but none compared to sin. Sin is more than what we do. It's what dwells in and over us. And it is what, save the intervention of grace, will grab our hand and lead us to the grave. It is why each year as we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we should really belt out that verse which reads, O come, thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory or the grave. Grace, do you see Christ City? Grace must be more than a word that looks nice in calligraphy or illuminated by Christmas lights. It must be more than something superficial because our sin is more than something superficial. Grace must be more. So we come to the second question. If we're going to grasp this grace we received, what then is the goal of grace? Why does grace come? Again, Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, and then Paul writes, bringing salvation for all people. An honest examination of our lives and our thoughts reveals sin's pervasiveness. An honest examination of our lives forces us to exclaim with Paul in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the good news of the gospel Christ city is that when honest examination is followed by honest exclamation, wretched person that I am, the door to the gospel of grace is open. Grace can come in. See, the goal of grace's explosive entrance into our sin-ruled world, the aim and purpose of Jesus' incarnation was to save sinners. Jesus, stating the mission statement for his own ministry, his own coming, says this in Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came, why? Why did Jesus come? So that we could feel better? Right, to add to our pantheon of personal gods? No, Jesus says, for the Son of Man came, why? To, to, to seek and to save the lost. To rescue us. Well, from what? From, from sin. So are you lost this morning? Do you feel your sin the way Paul feels his sin? Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come for you. But but please don't mishear me. Especially at Christmas time, we're told, aren't we quite often, that, that we're quite special. 
that we're quite special. That really the solution to your problem is just extending more what? Grace to yourself. So please don't misunderstand me. The grace needed to overcome the power of sin and death is not some cheap grace that can merely be spoken into existence. No. The grace needed to break through our all-encompassing shame is not some cheap grace that just says, well, don't just think about it and just kind of move past it and, and you're special. We have to work hard this morning to rescue grace from its popular perversions. By God's grace, Jesus did not look the other way at our sin. He did not wave over our sin from on high, from a distance. No, Jesus stares sin in its eyes and bears the full weight of it in his body. Grace, Paul writes, gave himself for us. This is no cheap grace, no flippant grace. Grace cost Jesus his, his life. And Paul writes that in giving himself for us, Jesus' death grabs us out of the mud pit of sin, he cleans us off, and he calls us his own. So hear me. Your sin may be great, but God's grace is greater. Your failures may be huge, massive, massive, but God's grace is bigger still. Your evil may be truly dark, like dark, 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 but there is no dark in which God's light does not penetrate, does not shine brightly. So before we move on and, and not just assume this gospel of grace this morning, I want you to close your eyes with me and join me in this mental exercise. Humor me. In, in our minds, in my mind, often sin is this immovable fortress, right? Brick by brick, sin by sin, we've built a castle internally over the years. And God's grace then, like a small, faint sort of wave, occasionally laps against the fortress Maybe, if, if, if really special, dislodges a brick or two, but ultimately the fortress of our sin remains. That's how I feel. I know that's how many of you feel. But that's not how the Bible ever speaks. Think again with me. Grace, friends, is not a small, pity, impotent wave. Grace is a tsunami. It's a tsunami. It is irresistible. The bricks and mortar of our rebellion crumble under the weight of the power of grace. It washes that fortress out to sea, and the bricks are never to be seen again. The sin that once rose so prominently, now devastated, gone, forgotten. Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, comes to free you, not someone else, you, from the reign of sin and death in your life. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? Grace, before it is anything else, is first a person that we receive. But it's also what fuels our fight. This is the second point. The grace we receive and now the grace to repent. 
Uh, it, it would be a mistake this morning to think that just because we receive grace apart from our works, that grace is not the fuel that leads to our works. There's a close relationship between grace and works. Notice the link that Paul makes in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Yes, we've seen that, Jake. But now he says this, Training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace, Paul says, is, is training us. Training us. What does this mean? Uh, the word translated here as training was this common word in the Greco-Roman world that would often be employed in reference to a, a parent training a child through, through correction, through exhortation, even, even discipline, the way a parent trains a child. And so God's grace then, Paul wants us to see, corrects us, teaches us, even disciplines us. Paul says in this present age, notice this is happening in an ongoing way. In an ongoing way. Paul does not say grace has trained us, right? He says, no, grace is training us. It's still training us. Again and again and again and again. So, so taken together, here's the picture he wants to leave us with. God's gospel of grace is now our tutor, our, our teacher, our headmaster, we could say. While once we received instruction at the feet of worldly tutors, Miss Hedonism, Mr. Consumerism, right? Mrs. Materialism, whatever else you want to put in there. We've now been freed from those worldly masters to sit under the teaching of grace. And that sounds nice, and that is true, but that's not always our experience, isn't it? See, what Paul's talking about here, what he's getting at, is that though we're under this new teacher, though the class is under a new rule, we still go back to the teachings of our old mentors, don't we? We still revert to the teachings that they once propagated to us. And, and I love that Scripture is so concerned with ensuring that we get this, that we find an example very clearly in Galatians chapter 2. So let me tell you a story. The Apostle Peter, you know him? You know Peter? He's a good guy, right? right? Big deal in the church. Right? There's, a, there's a square named after him in Rome. Right? He's done some things. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Peter, if you remember, denied Jesus, what, three times by a roaring fire. Jesus goes to the cross, dies, is resurrected. And again, there's another roaring fire. And at that second roaring fire, Peter is welcomed into God's kingdom by grace. He's commissioned to shepherd God's people. Peter has experienced God's grace. It's good, right? He's, he's once experienced God's grace, but, but the story continues. We, we know more about Peter's life. See, Paul ends up in Antioch, and we read about this in Galatians 2. When Paul comes to Antioch, he finds Peter separating himself from the Gentiles, from the non-Jewish people. He's not eating with the Gentiles anymore. That, we could say, racist bone in Peter's body has been pricked, and he's now separating himself from the Gentiles and is cloistering with the Jews. And what does Paul say to Peter? Does he say, Peter, 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 stop it. Just, just stop it. Like, st stop it. He doesn't say that. 
Nor does Paul say to Peter, Peter, clearly your sin is on the basis of ignorance. Let me educate you as to the latest thinking on race and racism, and together you'll understand this. No. What is Paul's rebuke to Peter in Galatians 2? He looks at the way Peter's living. He looks at the way his friends are living, and he says this. Their walk, their living was what? Not in step with the truth of the gospel. What does this mean? Peter's life was proclaiming, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for some people, namely the Jews. But the gospel of grace comes to us saying what? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all kinds of people, me and you, of different ethnicities, of, of different backgrounds, whatever we've done. Do you see how the gospel trains us? Do you see how it corrects us? Do you see how it disciplines us? And to make sure you know this isn't just a 2,000-year-old thing, this happened to me this past week. I was praying on Wednesday night. By the way, we have prayer every Wednesday night. You should come. I was praying on Wednesday night, and I was confronted with my sin that though I preach from the pulpit and say to others in private that God can save anyone from anything, I don't know if I actually believe that. And the Lord convicted me by his spirit. But, but he did more than just kind of convict me generally. He, he showed me the root. He said, Jake, you have this deep-seated pride that says at the end of day, the day, God chose you because you're kind of special. And you're kind of gifted. And God's lucky to have you on his team. Now, you're smiling, but that's just the tip of the iceberg of, of my ugliness. And to be honest, I can go long stretches thinking like this. Like I've earned my way onto God's roster. But the minute I consider grace and its claim on my life, my pride is threatened. Grace forces me to consider that my standing in Christ is just as unlikely as the most vile person I could conjure up. So what do we do? Because grace threatens us, we don't touch it. We avoid it. We give lip service to it as a doctrine, right? But we leave it over here on our theological shelf, never to be touched or disturbed. Why? I think the author Flannery O'Connor said it well when she said this. All human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us, and grace is what? Painful. See, in the economy of grace, we are not allowed to indulge our petty complaints. In the economy of grace, we are not allowed to indulge our bitter resentments, our perpetual victimization, these things, you know, that, that keep us warm at night. Grace instead fosters in us humility when the world is telling us to be proud. Grace fosters in us generosity when the world says, keep it. Grace propels us towards our enemy, though we know we will get hurt. Grace does all this, not passively and not in some abstract, mystical way, but hear me, Christ City, really practically, grace does all this as we repent. As we repent. See, Paul says that grace is particularly looking to train us to do what? Did you notice that word? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Meaning, there is first a no to grace. We are given the grace to say no. I know that's a swear word these days, but grace allows us to say no. It's spelled N-O, in case we've forgotten. Remember, sin is bondage. Sin is slavery. Sin is a prison cell plummeting to hell. But grace wakes us up to this reality. Grace trains us not to go back in that cell and close the door. Grace says no. Grace says stop. Grace says this is not in keeping in step with the gospel of grace. And all of this, even as I'm saying it, I can feel it. It sounds so odd, so foreign to us, because the refrain of this culture is never no, but always yes. We are told, me, you, our children, are told to always and unthinkingly affirm and never deny. If you desire it, do it. That's our slogan. But coming into the Christian faith then can be quite jarring. Becoming a follower of Jesus then can be quite jarring. Uh, the author Francis Schaeffer, he wrote this. And keep in mind, he wrote this in the 1980s. And I don't, I don't think it's changed. He said this. We are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. And when we are surrounded by this sort of mentality, then suddenly to be told that in the Christian life there is to be this strong negative aspect of saying no to things and no to self, it must seem hard. And then listen to what he says next. Hear this. Don't glaze over. Hear this. And if it does not feel hard to us, we are not really letting it speak to us. It's awkward, counterintuitive at first, but by God's grace, through the Spirit living in us, we are now able to say no to the voice of our old teacher, our old tutor. Again, just as sin goes deep, so must grace as well. Grace must work its way not only into our outward ungodliness, but also, Paul says, into our hearts, our desires, our loves, what he calls our worldly passions. So Christ City, let me just speak to you for a moment, just as your pastor. If, if you are never hearing God speak a no to you, if he sounds suspiciously like the bestseller that everyone is reading, then I'm not sure you're hearing God at all. In Christ, by his spirit, we are given the grace to say no, no, but also to say yes. Paul writes that we say yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is all fueled by the gospel of grace. Well, how does that work? A few years ago, I had the joy of coaching my oldest son in soccer. It really was a joy. I mean, practices were rough herding cats, uh, but cats would probably be easier. Uh, it was a joy to watch him, though, on, on, on Saturday mornings when he would play soccer. And as my son played, he had a father looking on who fully loved and accepted him, who delighted in him. He could get a silly penalty, and I would not love him any less. He could make a big mistake, cough up the ball, and I would not love him any less. My son knew as he played that game that I loved him regardless of his performance. But knowing his father is watching, what does my son long to do? 
He longs to score goals. He longs to do well. Not to receive my love and approval, but to please the one who already loves him. See, again, Tim Keller, he describes this dynamic like this. God's approval liberates us to live in a way which God approves of. Let me say that again, because it's really important we get this. God's approval liberates us to live in a way which God approves of. From that place of confidence, knowing our Father is pleased with us. So repentance is a no, followed by a yes. And if repentance is only a no, if that's how you understand repentance in the Christian life, then you will soon find yourself in the legalistic ditch. And it's boring, and it's drudgery, and it feels terrible over here. But if repentance is only a, a yes, you're soon going to find yourself enslaved to the things that once enslaved you. Repentance must be first a no, and then a yes. But how does this actually happen? How does this actually happen? How do we get this grace in us? How do we, we could say it like this, metabolize and live out the grace of the gospel in our life? Jake, what does this mean for me as I leave this place? Let me say this. The grace that must be first received, the grace that must be shown in repentance, must also Christ City be the grace that we rehearse, that we practice that we sit under and stand in and live and move and have our being in, the grace we rehearse. So we come back to Peter. We come back to Peter. Though Peter denied Jesus, Jesus offers Peter undeniable grace. And though Peter succumbed to sin, grace trained Peter in the no and yes of repentance. And so Peter comes to the end of his life. He's an old, frail man. And he's penning a letter. And it makes sense in that letter that he's not desiring to teach a new doctrine or innovate on something new. No, Peter begins Second Peter by explaining how the gospel of grace transforms how we live and then says this, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of the reminder. In other words, I'm not apologizing by talking about the gospel again. I'm not apologizing for rehearsing the gospel before you again. And in fact, he'll end the letter talking about the gospel of grace. And again, he'll say this in chapter 3, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In other words, I'm not saying anything new. Just rehearse it. Just live it. Just go deeper, not apart from it. Peter knew, perhaps better than anyone else, that if the gospel of grace is going to get into our bones and change how we live, change how our community operates, we'll need often reminders and regular rehearsals. This, by the way, just so you know, is why we and, and millions of Christians around the world every year celebrate Advent, this season of grace. Advent is God's regular, stubborn reminder that though things are not how they should be, God's grace has interrupted the world. Christ has appeared and will appear again. So I want to end this morning really simply by doing this. When it comes to rehearsing grace, we have to rehearse together and rehearse alone. We have to rehearse together and rehearse alone. First, we rehearse grace together. In a few moments, I'm going to invite you up. Not now, but in a few moments, I'll invite you up for the communion meal. Every Sunday, think about this. As the bread and the juice pass our lips, we remember God's grace in giving his son's body and blood for our salvation. And every Sunday, as you join the line, right? 
filled with all kinds of people. We remember that God's grace, grace saves us apart from our ethnicity, apart from our accomplishments, apart from anything inherent in us. God saves all kinds of people. Every Sunday, as you receive and do not take the elements from the hands of another, we remember that grace cannot be grabbed hold of by our efforts. It cannot be taken. It cannot be snatched but it's to be received in humble need. This is the posture of grace. But it doesn't end there. See, when you're leaving this room this morning, and I know this will happen, desperately trying not to make eye contact, right, with, with anyone, and, and you're stopped, and you're like, shoot, I'm not going to make the game. And someone asks you, are, are you doing okay? And all you can muster are these incoherent sobs. And before you know it, you're caught up in a familial embrace. And together, we're asking that Jesus would do something that only Jesus can do. Is that not a rehearsal of grace? But what about when we confess our sins each Sunday morning? When Josh or Ellie or Paul or someone else leads us in reciting the gospel? pronounces over us the assurance of our salvation. Is that not also a rehearsal of grace? Let, let, me, speak, let me speak for a moment, just not as, as your pastor, but as a fellow sojourner on this journey. My favorite days of the week are Sunday morning in community group. Again, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a sinner in need of rehearsing grace. Often needing to hear the gospel of grace. So we rehearse together. Do not neglect the gathering, Christ City. Do not neglect it. However, it's unreasonable to think that we'll always be together, so we must rehearse alone. I'm going to invite uh, Josh and Paul to come up, and, and Daniel and Heath and the ushers are going to come. You're going to receive uh, an index card. So you're going to come by, receive it, an in index card, and you'll get a pen. If you need a pen, grab a pen, take one. If you don't need a pen, use your own. That's great. Please return the pens. Our budget for pens has now skyrocketed, and we'll have to make some major cuts in 2023 to make up for that. But we're doing this because of this. This week I was reading about a pastor who was, um, who'd carry around with him wherever he went, an index card like the one that you're receiving. And written on that card were certain truths about the gospel of grace. See, he, like all of us, Realize that if God's grace is going to get in us, right, in our bones, we need to be preaching it to ourselves all the time. We need to be combating the anti-grace and cheap grace messages we are hearing all the time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do exactly what he did. You've got an index card. Hopefully you have a pen. And on the screen behind me are some gospel reminders. Now, there are more implications of the gospel than this. This is just a start. But what I want us to do with the next three to four minutes that we have, as Josh leads us in song, is reflect on those reminders we have on the screen. Ask the Lord what speaks to you. What do you need to hear on a daily basis? What are you prone to forgetting? We're going to take some time to do that now. Again, attached to all these is a memory verse or just a verse. If you want to take that verse and get that in your, in your body, get that in your head, right? Eat that word. That would encourage you. Do that. Write that down. Memorize that. Make it a habit. 
We're going to spend some time reflecting on this right now. Write down what speaks to you. I'll come up at the end and lead us in response. Grace that brought me to the 
So let me encourage you this week. Those index cards are of no use to you staying at home. They're of no use to you on your bedside table. Bring it with you. Take it with you. As you go to work, as you take a break, before you tuck your kids in at night, rehearse the gospel of grace in your life. We need to get this in our bones. Amen? Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.